0: Hey everyone, welcome to Brown Breakdown. I'm your host, Apoorva Every episode, I get to sit down with South Asian artists of all types at all different levels of their careers to understand the tools necessary to build a life as an artist. We'll be talking about everything from turning a hobby into a career, obstacles along the way, breaking tired stereotypes, and changing the media landscape to be more inclusive. My guest today is London-based comedian and writer Hari Kanth, Hurry is a part-time software engineer and part-time comedy writer. Hurry first started performing when he signed up to do a one-hour solo stand-up show as his first gig ever. Although he claims the show was not great, he kept at it and performed regularly at the Stan Comedy Club in Edinburgh and eventually performed twice in Edinburgh's Fringe Festival and became one of six finalists for the BBC New Comedy Award. Hurry has now moved away from stand-up to focus on comedy writing and directing. His web series, Wormhole, a series of sketches, features topics like how to solve everyday disputes with your flatmate and absurd relationship troubles. Currently, Hurry is writing a new sitcom pilot and working on a blog and newsletter called Smash Cut 2, which features weekly blog posts about his own thoughts and adventures as he delves further into comedy writing. And most recently, after taping this episode, Hurry was shortlisted for BBC's Staff Writer Program and was offered a trial writing spot on Radio 4's The Now Show, a comedy news podcast hosted by Steve Hunt and Hugh Dennis. You can hear a few of his jokes and sketches that made it into the final episode. And your host might sound a little different in this episode, but don't freak out. I'll explain. So um, that's why you're hearing a British accent. It's a form of code switching. When I talk to all of my family members, I have a British accent. And when I talk to all of my American friends, I have an American accent.
1: I've heard about code switching, but I don't know how it works.
0: Yeah. Um, so the term, I think it was originally coined in the 1980s, and it's mostly used to describe, I think, originally the black community switching from African-American vernacular to like the white norm of dialect. But it's kind of been expanded and it comes naturally to me that when I'm talking to someone with a certain accent, a, well, a British accent that comes out and then an American accent because I moved when I was 11 years old. Yeah. So it was like right in that um, psychological range. And I do know someone else actually, a friend of mine and her family is Irish. So when she speaks to her family, she has a thick Irish accent. And when she speaks to her American friends, she has an American accent. And she's one of the only people I've met who have this as well. Nice. All right, hurry, welcome to Brown Breakdown. Thanks for having me. This is our first time meeting. We met through Twitter. And as I know you're writing a sitcom pilot, is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's what I'm working on at the moment.
0: I definitely want to get into talking about the sitcom pilot, but lots to cover before that. So I want to learn more about you. So where did you grow up? Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into comedy?
1: My family is Sri Lankan, uh, but I was born and raised in London. Um, And then I don't know how I got into comedy, actually. I think I watched a lot of it when I was in my teens. Um, So we had a lot of American sitcoms. I think I remember The Simpsons and Friends being the first ones that I really got into and then at some point I was like yeah I really enjoy this and I want to make it but then I got into it I guess when I was at university so I signed up to do like an hour-long show as my first stand-up gig because I didn't know how it worked so an hour
0: long for your first gig
1: yeah they had like an art festival and I thought yeah that I saw other people do one hour so I'm sure that's how you're supposed to get started and I mean obviously it was terrible Uh, But in the end of it, I got a good (laughs) five minutes. So, win-win.
0: That's amazing that the first one you did was an hour. I feel like um, most of my friends who do stand-up, they go in doing a five-minute set.
1: Yeah, that's the correct way to do it. Yeah, they did it correctly. And yeah, just to be clear, it was really, really bad. Like, I uh, was looking back at some of the notes recently and I'm very embarrassed at some of the routines.
0: I'm sure it was okay. (laughs) So when, so you said you grew up watching a lot of American sitcoms, so who would you say were your comedy heroes? Did you prefer American sitcoms to British ones?
1: Yeah, I definitely, I don't know why. I've had lots of discussions about this with people since. I think I just like the enthusiasm and optimism of American sitcoms, whereas I feel like British ones on average tend to be a lot more depressing. But I, I guess that's changed recently because everyone's exposed to kind of everything so there are a lot of writers here now who yeah also grew up on American sitcoms and that kind of gets folded into their work.
0: I feel like I know so many American writers who prefer British comedy because they're like oh American comedy it's all upbeat and you have to have a laugh track and all of these things so a lot of them like really prefer the British office for example. Oh
1: yeah I'm the, <laughs> yeah I guess I'm the complete opposite I way prefer the American office maybe it's just like the grass is always greener on the other side.
0: I think Probably you're right. And speaking of British comedy, I one question that I had for you is, do you feel like there's a big difference between representation in British TV and American TV? Because I feel like from my experience, when I was in the UK, I feel like it was much more common to see especially um, South Asian actors in British TV shows. And it was much less common in American comedies and TV shows. So do you f- what do you feel like the conversation around representation is like in the UK? Yeah,
1: I was thinking about this. I, I'm, no, I'm not sure what I guess the right answer is. I, I, I feel personally that representation in America is better. So if I think about it, in the last few years, things like like Master of None or Never Have I Ever, like seeing characters kind of speaking in Tamil or like calling their parents like Ammar and Appa, like I, I don't think I've ever seen that on UK television. Maybe there have been strides in the UK. So I remember when I was a lot younger, there was a, a sketch show on TV called Goodness Gracious Me, yeah. which um, had a whole Indian cast. That, that show, uh, like I really enjoyed that show but it was always through the lens of like, oh, look at how Indian people are different. or this is kind of all the weird things I do. Whereas I feel like the, those shows that I mentioned now, they're more like, these are just normal people doing normal things, but they're kind of through the lens of being South Asian.
0: I think that's a really interesting distinction. I was thinking about shows like Sex Education, which I guess is in some ways an American production because it's produced by Netflix, but they have, and the main characters are not South Asian, but a lot of the supporting characters are. And I feel like it's not a big deal that they're South Asian. It's just a fact of their character and they're allowed to just live their life. Whereas I feel like sometimes in American comedies, it like has to be this big thing that's talked about.
1: Yeah. But then um, I guess on the flip side, I've recently been watching Superstore, uh, which uh, recently came onto Netflix here. And that feels like it does a similar thing. Like it's a incredibly diverse cast but they're just allowed to, to be themselves
0: i guess there's lots of examples but I, i'm i'm glad to hear that you feel like there's progress here too because sometimes i think i get stuck in that grass is always greener thing and i think maybe it's because i tend to romanticize my time in the uk as well so i'm like oh everything's better there and representation is better there but yeah i think i mean there's growing to be done on both sides for sure from
1: listening to people it feels like uh things are bad like there's um, I've heard stories of people like needing to move to America in order to kind of make progress after being really limited.
0: Yeah, and I guess a lot of British actors do end up here as well. So going back to your time at university, so that's sort of where you first ventured into doing comedy yourself. And how did you come across this stand-up show? Was it just something that you saw and you thought, oh, maybe I'll just give it a shot? Or was it something going into university that you knew you wanted to try out?
1: I originally was always more interested in uh, sitcom writing and comedy writing in that way yeah while i was at uni i watched a lot of stand-up so there was a club that they set up in the student union where touring comedians would come and perform and that's yeah that's where i really first got into it and then saw there's quite a like a fast art form like compared to sitcom writing like you just like, you know, write an hour show and perform it and get feedback on it. Yeah, and then I, so I started out at the University of Warwick and then moved up to Edinburgh to do a post-grad. And that's where I really got into stand-up because obviously the Edinburgh Fringe is there. So it was just like exposed to all this comedy every year. And the scene there was really nice and friendly. Uh, so I just kept doing it and uh, yeah, just grew from there.
0: And it's so true what you said about stand-up being something that feels like a faster track because it's a really easy way for people to see your work right away. Yeah, exactly. And you can perform it for them. And for me, I think I personally have never done stand-up because I don't think it's as much my style, but I have seen my friends who do stand-up, you know, they're able to get a lot of traction very quickly. You're saying, so you said that you wanted to start transitioning away from stand-up. Could you talk to me a little bit about why or if there was a specific moment that made you realize that you wanted to spend less time focusing on stand-up and more time on writing narrative comedy? Yeah,
1: so I think narrative comedy was still always the goal even when I was doing stand-up at the back of my mind it was yeah like you said I could maybe get some traction here and then use that to go back into um, narrative comedy and then I was I guess it was a couple of years ago now I was working on my last fringe show which I was doing in Edinburgh and for that I did this thing where I tried to work on it every single day because I have this problem where I get distracted by other projects so I remember my first show I kind of worked on my stand-up show for like the first two months and then switched to working on sitcoms and then went back to working on the show and I was like oh I should have spent the whole time working on the show because I've got so much work to do so for that one I was like I'm only going to do stand-up but then by the end of it I was just so fed off of it and I was so looking forward to going back to writing so even though the second show was a lot more fun I think I kind of like lowered the stakes for myself and I really enjoyed it at the end I was like yeah I don't really need to do this anymore and
0: the second show was at the end of 2019 yeah it was yeah so I guess in some ways your transition came at the perfect time because you wanted to stay away from stand-up at the end of 2019 and then a pandemic happened which is almost the perfect opportunity to start writing narrative comedy
1: yeah exactly yeah it worked out incredibly well.
0: And what did you study while you were at university?
1: So physics.
0: And you mentioned that your parents didn't even want you to do physics so what did they want you to do? Yeah
1: so I guess they originally would have preferred me to do engineering because I I guess that's more it feels like a more career-based thing so uh, which is fair enough uh, like when I first suggested it, they you know said things like you know what can you do with physics and I didn't even know the answer to that question at the time like now I don't do it anymore I, I'm doing software development but eventually I kind of convinced them and I'm glad yeah I really enjoyed it
0: so after university you moved to London or was that after your your um graduate degree
1: yeah after my graduate degree so I was um from London originally so I moved back with my Um, Mum for, I think, three years in the end, yeah.
0: And what is the stand-up scene like in London and the comedy scene compared to uh, Edinburgh?
1: Yeah, I found it a lot more difficult. I think Edinburgh... Well, firstly, I got involved through the Student Society, which is, like, automatically a lot more friendlier because everyone's trying to figure out, like, what they're doing and there was a lot more alternative. And then because the scene was a lot smaller, like you could progress faster so I was getting paid weekend gigs um, like within a year or like a year and a half at uh, The Stand which is uh, yeah a really great uh, comedy club at Edinburgh and then like moving back down to London I had a little bit of traction from doing those things but then it was you know it's a much larger pool so like had to kind of prove myself again and it was just because it's so big and there's so many people doing it it was like really hard to kind of find that community some people have found it but then that's through like really gigging several times a week and i just never had the energy for that so yeah i found it a lot more lonely and the scene was a lot more yeah i guess open mikey in kind of the traditional sense
0: And did you feel like the people and the community in Edinburgh was much more supportive compared to London?
1: Absolutely, like I'm still friends with a lot of them now, like it's nearly, I guess, like seven or eight years later.
0: I feel similarly about Chicago. I mean, Chicago is obviously a really big comedy city, but I've always found that the people here are really supportive.
1: But that said, in London, the improv scene is a lot friendlier. So yeah, and I've kind of gravitated towards that. So that really reminds me of what it was like being in Edinburgh. Yeah, everyone's helping each other out.
0: What brought you to improv?
1: I just wanted to try it out. I think it was it was one of those things that I like started to hear a lot about, and um, around that time, like a few schools had kind of started up in London. And I always liked the idea of like being good at like every form of comedy, like very naively. So I thought you know it'd just be a good thing to try out and kind of improve my skill set.
0: Of a struggle because I feel like you're you definitely have a writer's brain do you have a struggle with improv when you're also trying to write something and you're doing improv because for me I gravitated towards improv instead of stand-up because I really like the community aspect and I don't love being on stage alone so I like that if I completely bomb a joke you know my my ensemble is there to Kind of hype me up and make sure that i'm not making a complete fool of myself Yeah, exactly. which i so admire about stand-ups that they have that kind of confidence in themselves but i found that when i started to when i became more serious about writing sitcoms or sketch comedy i was struggling with my improv because i was trying to control what was happening do you feel like that happened to you at all
1: oh yeah i know what you mean yeah i definitely i've always had an issue with that like overthinking. like i think um like, yeah, trying to construct, like, the perfect character or or joke or game, and then, yeah, and then the moment's gone, and then, like, I'm just standing on the back line regretting it. I think I've got better at that, like, just through doing it more, but that's still, yeah, definitely something I struggle with. I think you'll have those shows occasionally where you're, like, totally in the zone, and it works, but I think, yeah, there's still a bit on the rarer side at the moment
0: so you were also a finalist for the, for the bbc radio new comedy award in 2014.
1: yeah so it was um just after i finished my postgrad actually so i'd, I'd entered the previous year and i I, th- I got through to the heats but then didn't make it much further than that and then this was the deadline came around and because to enter you have to kind of submit like a five minute clip i kind of like cared less so i was just like oh i have I'm just going to submit this and see what happens. And then I was like really surprised when I got through to the heats again. And then, yeah, somehow managed to get all the way to the final.
0: And you were one of six finalists. Yes, yeah. Six out of like 800? I think that was the number I saw. I mean, something crazy, but it was really cool. And your five minute clip was awesome, by the way. Oh, thanks. I liked your, I really like your joke about your last name at the beginning.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's based on a true story. That's that's how it works.
0: Is that why you decided to shorten it as well? Yeah,
1: that was part of it. But then I think also I was trying to get more into social media and I felt I felt very uncomfortable being myself. Like I, I found just having a separate name just made it a lot like it was a weird kind of just mental detach. Like I could be that person online, and then just be a different person in the real world.
0: Yeah, I um, I don't know if you are familiar with Aquafina. uh yes. Yeah. I listened to an interview with her, and she said that the big reason why she decided to have a different stage name is because she felt like she could detach herself and really put herself out there as Aquafina in a way that she couldn't when she was herself as Nora.
1: Oh, nice. In hindsight, I probably should have chosen a cooler name I didn't go for a very original stage name it's just a slightly shorter one yeah acophine is a pretty cool stage name
0: it is a really cool stage name I mean I don't have a stage name at all who knows maybe maybe I will have a stage name after today so in your early years of stand-up how did you find your voice when you were first starting out how did you were there any stand-up comedians that you looked up to yeah
1: I, I don't know if I actually know the answer to that now i th- I think it just went through a process of just trying lots of different things out. When I started, there were two u k stand ups uh, who I really enjoyed they were Mark Watson and michael mcintyre um so I guess i was i guess like when anyone starts out with these kind of things was like emulating them slightly um but then when I was in Edinburgh, I found like geekier stuff tend to go down well, so you know throwing in the occasional physics jokes but then now, well, not now because I don't do it anymore, but um I guess later on, I was kind of motivated by thinking of the kind of things I liked seeing and uh, wanted to talk about and then trying to make a show that kind of fit around those things. So, like, my first show was about, like, trying to find happiness. second show was about not wanting kids. Um, But then, Mm -hmm. yeah, I never, even now when I'm writing sitcoms, I still, like, what what is my voice? That kind of question kind of eludes me. I guess there's some things, there's some routines where I'll write uh, which I'll write and they'll go down really well, and then I'll feel bad about them. So then I'll be like, I know that's not my voice, but what we'll actually, yeah. What well, my voice is, I'm not entirely sure.
0: It's definitely an ongoing process. I don't think anyone like really figures it out. I'm sure even Hassan Minhaj or someone is still figuring out what their voice is. I like that you went the route of having a theme for your stand-ups. And I had a question about the one you said, one of them was themed around not wanting kids. Do you ever, f- how do your people close to you in your life feel about you using them in your stand-up sets?
1: I usually clear it with them. So I think it's, yeah. Okay. That last one, um, <laughs> involved a lot about, um, trying to like working up the courage to tell my dad about it because I kind of got the impression he wouldn't be okay with us not having kids. And I got around that one by just not ever talking about it or telling him. And he still doesn't know to this day.
0: That's one interesting thing about stand up too, that I feel like people are very open about their lives, which I really appreciate. And as a comedian and someone who enters like a public eye. I feel like that is new territory. Yeah
1: it's, it's part of the deal you know uh, being, uh, being with someone who's a, a comedian.
0: As you're transitioning away from stand-up you're going more into narrative comedy both in terms of sketch comedy and pilot writing. So can you tell me a little bit about your first web series Wormhole? Yeah so
1: um, actually I did, a, <laughs> I did a web series before that in back when I was at uni oh okay it was about a bunch of characters working behind the scenes at a comedy club naturally that was a lot of fun actually um yeah because we filmed it at that comedy club the stand which I really like at Edinburgh at the time you know classic I assumed that it was really great and everyone would love it and I just had to release it and all the fame and everything would be mine but then obviously it didn't get that reception and in hindsight yeah there was a lot of things to improve I guess from that experience I didn't do it again for a while because I was kinda of like, okay, the next one does need to be perfect. But then I thought, screw it, I'll just yeah, try wormhole, which was more just really low stakes, messing around kind of sketches. Yeah, that was around the time that I was transitioning away from stand up. So I thought, you know, I want to do writing directing, so that would be a good way to kind of practice those skills because I know nothing really about it. So I filmed a couple of sketches which were a lot of fun. But then yeah, I was hoping to film more but know yeah, then the pandemic happened and I've been a bit too nervous to kind of film more since then but yeah hoping to get back on it this summer
0: and what was the inspiration for this style of web series because even though the they're kind of standalone episodes it's not like they follow a specific narrative arc but they do share this relationship based uh foundation
1: oh uh there I guess there was no yeah cohesive theme they were just standalone sketches and it's kind of naturally grown from there I think yeah the idea it was just kind of like experimentative just try different ideas and see what works. Do
0: you think future episodes will follow more like couples trying to hash out different debates?
1: Yeah, I think actually thinking about it, that's more like the constraints of filming. So couple sketches, it means I don't have to have a big cast. Then I can invite them around to my flat to film. So yeah, I think the the next ones I had lined up just, yeah, also happened to be couple ones because of that constraint. But yeah, it would be good to, like, I... Yeah, the next like kind of big milestone in my head is to attempt to do a sketch outside, which I've never done before. But yeah, if I can do that with like more than two people, that'd be pretty cool.
0: I feel like every time I try to film something outside, everyone's like, oh, no, but the sound and the wind, don't do it. Um, But I'm sure you'll tackle it with grace.
1: Oh, I didn't even think about those. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll have to probably do
0: it. I hope I didn't scare you away. How did you choose who you wanted to be in the sketches? Oh,
1: so they were just people I've uh, met through stand-up and improv, and I really like their work and think they're funny. So I just thought, you know, it'd be a good opportunity to kind of work with them.
0: Are there any directors that you take inspiration from when you're going into your sketches, or is it very much more free-form, like play with what's happening and then just see what happens when you put the actors in front of the camera. Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm such a like amateur dilettante, like I have no idea what I'm doing. So I just uh, play around and see what happens. I think comedy wise, who I, I really look up to Edgar Wright a lot. I really like the fact that um, he is very visual with his comedy um, and doesn't just have, you know, like your shot reverse shot. So even that first sketch I did, um, like it was all built around that kind of pen reveal to the, the larger teddy bear. Um, yes. So that's, yes. yeah, that's as far as I got. But yeah, other than that, yeah, I really should do some training.
0: No, I think it was great. I really liked that reveal at the end because it almost it's like, it takes a bit of suspension of disbelief and you weren't calling out what the joke was, but I liked that it was all visual. So I thought it was great. And I would love <laughs> to see more of that too. And also, I think that's my kind of humor, too, is just like, it feels serious and grounded, but then there's just something that's a little bit off. And obviously, your physics background definitely came through in rock, paper, scissors.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, I tried to make as much use of that as I can.
0: And speaking of your physics background, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to one of your blog posts, which was about the graphs of success this blog post which i'm going to try and post on my instagram because i think everyone who listens to this podcast should look at it it was such a great visual representation of what it's like to try and pursue an artistic career so could you could you explain the i'm sure you'll explain it much better than i can so maybe you can explain it and then i'll also post a picture of
1: it it came from actually while i was working on the sitcom pilot because yeah, so my, uh, this one is also kind of semi-autobiographical, and it's about this main character who's kind of has this job that they're kind of doing okay at, but is kind of really wants to be a filmmaker and be creative. And <laughs> one of the useful things, I guess, about writing something which is based on yourself is like you really have to dig in. So you know, I was thinking about you know what, why why does this character struggle to just do what they want and follow their dreams? Uh, And then one of the things that came out was, yeah, this way of thinking about the world. And yeah, so so we're so kind of trained to think that if you plotted like time effort versus success, that you kind of, you you know, you put in a little bit of effort and then you get a little bit of success. And it kind of keeps going like this kind of Y equals X, like straight line, always going upwards. That's how it has been for like maybe, you know, 50 or 100 years. You know, you, you join a company. You, you get, you do your work, you get a bit promoted, you get a pay rise, and then you just keep going until you retire. But then the problem is like when you want to do something like this or, you know, or any kind of creative, even if it's like starting a business, the graph yeah. doesn't look like that at all. It's like there's, you put in so much effort and time and it feels like nothing comes out of it. Yeah, that graph is, is like more like an exponential graph, you know, which we all know now because that's also the same as viruses. Uh, ah, yes. <laughs> uh, and then also that's really depressing because that graph like at the beginning looks exactly the same as like a zero graph where nothing is happening so it's really it's really hard to kind of you know be chipping away at this thing where there's no progress when kind of there's this expectation, you know, both external but also internal that, you know, you just are steadily getting better all the time. I think, yeah, the trick is to just have faith that it will work out in the end, even if it doesn't, you know, you never know, um, but just keep going. I found myself getting like caught in a trap for a while because if you do have, so uh, like I said, I'm a software developer and you have this career where you have this kind of progression, the kind of, the longer you stay on it, the less time you have to work on your own things. And then the points where those graphs crossover gets like higher and higher and further away to get to I guess it's all a bit of a mess and it's just remembering to kind of just stick at it even if it feels like there's no progress
0: right and you also mentioned that everyone's individual exponential graph will look really different so like someone else's rising point could be much earlier than my own or something so to have that faith that it just you keep you have to keep going and I really liked this representation of it, because I felt like I couldn't really put into words why I felt like I was putting in so much and not getting that much out versus my friends who right after university decided to you know, go onto a corporate job and are already getting their first promotion. Yeah. yeah. So I really liked that explanation. And I've heard lots of different ones. Like one of my friends describes it as when you have a cartoon character, and in cartoons, like they'll pick up like a mouse or something and it will be running in air. And then when you put it down, it zooms off. So that's how he describes it, which is one way to do it. Um, but I really like this one because I think it also just puts it into perspective with other careers, especially more stable careers. Yeah, I think if,
1: if, if in my career I was able to figure out a way to make it look like that initial graph for other people, I think that would be that's a really cool thing to aim for. I have no idea how I would do that.
0: And you mentioned that this came about when you were sort of working out your main character for your sitcom pilot. So, this is something that I really struggled with too is I, I know that I read one of your blog posts where you talked about different writing structures so I don't know if this is something that you use when you're creating characters but in the writing classes I take they always talk about having like a core wound or a main floor for your character and when I was writing a character that was really similar to myself I didn't want to give her a like really real flaw or core wound because it felt like an attack on myself so how did you how did you tackle that?
1: I struggle with that as well. I think actually that last stand up show really helped with that. I was think I was working um, a bit with a director to kind of get it into a good shape, and that involves a lot of uh, like him asking the kind of questions of like you know why why are you like this like why 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 can't you tell your dad that you don't want kids. And I think that was really like a really useful exercise to go through because it really got me in the habit of kind of yeah really just digging deep. It is tricky because um, and also actually I'm now finding it less of an issue for my own character. I'm finding it more of an issue for other characters which are based on real people where you have to kind of dig into their floor. There was one time where I kind of was asking a friend of mine a lot of questions because I was modeling this character on them. And then it just kind of like naturally evolved from that person. So the character in the end was kind of nothing like them. And then they, I gave it back to them and then they were really offended. Understandably so because like the <laughs> character I'd presented was nothing like them. And they thought that that's how I saw them. So that I guess I'm more wary of now.
0: I, You might be a much nicer person than I am because I think I find it easier for the other characters that I'm modeling on people in my life to figure out what their main flaw is. But usually I think you're right. As you exaggerate these characters and make them fit into that kind of zany sitcom world they do become very far from the real person that you started with but i'm ge- i think i'm getting better at figuring out what my flaws are and that also makes the character more interesting what,
1: what is what is your what have you found that your flaw is if you don't mind me asking
0: I, I mean i think i have many but <laughs> for this new character yes this new character that i'm writing i think i really focused in on the flaw of wanting control relinquishing control has clearly been a big theme in my life in improv and then also especially during lockdown, relinquishing the control of ideas that I had for what I wanted the beginning of my career to look like. So it's been an exercise in trying to relinquish control and it's been really fun to think about how I slash this character get myself into a mess by trying to control everything around me and especially having difficulty with delegating things to other people or trusting other people and so those things have come up for this character and I guess for myself. <laughs> nice. So speaking of your sitcom pilot would you be able to give a brief description of what it is? I
1: still haven't figured out a clear pitch which I probably should uh, but the basic it's premise. Hard yeah it, yeah it's uh, i probably should have done it at the beginning but the basic premise is that yeah there's this character who wants to be a filmmaker but they're struggling because they have a job and their dad kind of moves in next door so it's kind of so like i said my dad kind of lives in sri lanka well sorry my dad lives in malaysia at the moment and sri lanka previously so He hasn't lived in the UK for 20 plus years. You know, sometimes I imagine what kind of person I would be if he had been more in my life. Because I think in the sense that his way of seeing the world is completely different to how I've now turned out. So I think it was in my head kind of using that kind of like Fraser like dynamic of like uh, father and son.
0: So he moves in next door and endless possibilities of what can happen Yeah, ensue. Is that, that's sort of how you put it? Yeah, so by
1: the end of the pilot, like, the main character loses his job, uh, but then doesn't tell his dad, and then so tries to secretly to see his own thing in the background
0: oh my gosh that could be so I could already see in the second episode then you're like trying to figure out how you can make it look like you're going to work or something exactly. so that you're done yeah. oh that's so fun I want to watch it <laughs> and in another I'm really enjoying your blog post I really hope you do more of them because I feel like you're able to articulate many of my inner thoughts in a way that I cannot so you wrote a blog post called ugly babies yeah And in that one, you talked about how our first drafts are always going to be terrible. And I'm not sure of the example that you used, but one that came to mind for me was the writers of South Park call their first draft the dog shit draft. (laughs) Yeah. So what for you recently has made it possible to accept that your first draft is going to be bad? And why do you think it's difficult for us as writers and creatives to internalize that idea when great writers are able to internalize it
1: have you ever come across that ira glass quote about the gap
0: remind me i
1: can't remember the exact quote but the idea is that like everyone becomes creative and does this kind of stuff because they enjoy watching comedy but yeah so the problem is like you know we get into it because we like have taste and we enjoy that stuff and then when you start doing it it's inevitably never as good as the stuff that you enjoy so that's the core problem like it's it's never going to match the the expectations that you have, given all the things that you're watching. Like I remember, like when I was younger, was really obsessed with The Simpsons, and obviously nothing I ever wrote was ever going to be as good <laughs> as The Simpsons was in its heyday. So could you it,
0: imagine if you were, if you were 12 years old and you could write something as good as The Simpsons.
1: Oh yeah, I, if that <laughs> I'd was, amazed. I would be a lot further along in my career <laughs> if that happens. So I think it's just yeah, it's just that and. And especially when you're kind of balancing a day job, I found that I put a lot of pressure on those projects because each one I'm like, okay, this is going to be the one that finally gives me my big break and I can kind of like come out of this cycle. But yeah, I guess recently it's just, I don't know, it's just through attrition, I guess, just slowly realizing that, yeah, I guess my job isn't to make something amazing, it's to just get it out and just slowly improve it over time but I still struggle with it like even this it's like you know <laughs> in my head it's like oh I'm going to be such an amazing podcast guest like people are going to listen to this and they're going to think that I'm so wise but obviously that's not going to happen because this is like maybe my third ever interview
0: I disagree I think you're a great podcast guest ah,
1: thank you that's very kind
0: of course <laughs> I really that's a really interesting idea of you're trying to make something because you have good taste but you just can't do it yet and I think for me which is why I'm rewriting this first pilot entirely, is because when I did my first, I finished my first draft and I was like, oh my God, I wrote a sitcom pilot and it's amazing and it's on paper and I'm not gonna edit it because it's great. And then I did take it to a script consultant. And usually people say you should wait to take drafts to script consultants for, until a little bit later. But I was like, no, I think mine's good. I'm gonna take it to a script consultant. And she ripped me apart. And completely. She was like, There's no story. Your story starts on page twenty six. And I was like, Oh what do you mean my story starts on page twenty-six? There's gonna be three seasons of the show. I can't give it all away in the first episode. <laughs> I so I had to put it away for a couple months because I don't think I had yet developed that muscle of being able to criticize my own work or look at it more objectively. I think it was just too close to my heart. Yeah. And so I had to put it away for a while and work on other projects. So yeah, I think it's really hard the first time we're writing creatively, especially something that feels like a huge obstacle. I mean, writing of your first sit compiler is hard. And even if it's terrible, it's still a huge accomplishment. Yeah, definitely practice is a big part of that too, in bridging the gap. (laughs) Back to your quote.
1: Yeah. And actually, yeah, yeah, that also helped get to that point. I think it's the sense of, yeah, finishing a project and having enough people say, yeah, this needs a lot of work. (laughs) Eventually you just internalize it.
0: What, okay, so I wanna talk a little bit about writing structure. So you've come across a lot of different writing structures for sitcoms. And you said that because you come from like a more STEM background, a physics background, there's that, you have that desire to sort of find a right answer. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think I feel very similarly. So which, which for you do you feel like have been the most helpful in terms of writing structures? Yeah,
1: I think in the end, I think the simplest ones turn out to be the ones that I keep coming back to, which I actually forgot to mention in that blog post. But um, Aaron Sorkin has this thing about intention and obstacle, which is like what you need for any story or scene, which is like a character wants something, uh, but there's something stopping them from getting it. And then I also really like that um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone have this but and therefore rule, which says that when you write out your story beats, you should be able to connect them with like the words, but or therefore, as opposed to like, and then, which means that you kind of have a repulsive story. So I think those kind of basic ones are like the ones I keep going back to you. And then above that, it's just, I guess, like picking and choosing lots of things. Like at the moment I'm, as I'm reworking my pilot, I'm using the nutshell technique, and I can't remember the name of the person who wrote the book, unfortunately. I want to say something Chamberlain. I don't know. Again, it's it's one of these structures which, you know, they kind of claim that it kind of works for everything, which I'm not sure is necessarily true. But it's just I found it quite useful, especially for like taking a character to this kind of floor-based approach. So I think it's just like taking lots of different things and figuring out what works.
0: Yeah, I've heard of the but-therefore rule. Is it? Were the people you mentioned, the South Park people?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes. Okay. So I had heard it from them. I don't know why I don't even watch South Park. I don't know why I know so many examples of them. <laughs> but the one that I think that I use that was is close to one of the ones that you described is S R E P, which oh, yeah. is setup, reveal, escalation, payoff. But I think that one is very specific to TV 30-minute comedy pilots. Do you think that's true? I, well,
1: I quite like that one because, um, so that was explained to me by uh, Chris Head, who's like a teacher in the UK, because I, uh, cause I also quite like, like the fractal nature of all these kind of things. So like things that work on the smaller scale also work on the larger scale. So I think that's quite a good one for even like a scene or a joke but then can also work as like a, for storylines.
0: Oh yeah. Yes. That's a really good point. So the one I use is, um, I've taken classes at this company called Script Anatomy and they're based in LA, but I mean, they've been doing online classes for years and now all of the classes are online. So the one they use is inciting incident, midpoint escalation, low point climax resolution. So it's really similar. And I guess it, they do use it also for hour-long shows, but I don't know about film. Do you think SREP would work for a film?
1: I guess on a high level, but maybe... I guess, yeah, you need a lot more detail and kind of connecting parts to kind of stretch out. But yes,
0: I think you're, that's really true that that can work for each individual scene to give it its own arc. Yeah. Sometimes when I think about the minutiae of writing, I'm just like, it's so hard.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: Maybe it becomes second nature.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, I think that's, that's the ideal that we're... Aspiring to, and I, I think I felt like that. That is one of the because I'm so fickle with structures, and I keep like bouncing between them. And I'll be like, every time I come across a new one, I'm like, yeah, this is the one. This is the one that's going to unlock it. It has slightly got to a point where, at each point, I can think, oh, okay, maybe this part of this structure would be useful here. So I'm hoping, yeah, I imagine you can get to this ideal where it's just like you have a story idea, then you sit sit down and then just type out this masterpiece. But yeah, right. I'm a, I'm a long, I'm... long way from that. If it is even possible,
0: I've been wa- I've been rewatching Modern Family. Do you Do you watch Modern Family?
1: Yeah, we we recently went through all. Well, we've seen the first ten seasons. We still haven't got the eleventh one.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, it all eleven seasons just came on Hulu in the U.S. So I've been rewatching it, and I mean they're all such seasoned writers. Yeah, and every single scene has a a runner within it a joke runner within it and then also like a puff it could live on its own as a clip and it's just insane so I'm like I hope one day I can get to that level but I'm not gonna hold myself to that standard right now
1: (laughs) yeah I guess it's also yeah it's reassuring because yeah when I was digging into Modern Family so I think the creators their background was actually in Frasier so they have been going a really long time and obviously like, Frasier's also, like, incredible writing quality. So not only have they had the chance to train with them, but then they also have their own writer's room. So, yeah, it's, yeah, both inspiring, but also kind of reassuring that, like, with enough effort, you can kind of get there eventually.
0: And I don't know if, I mean, I'm sure you do feel the same way because it seems so from your blog post, but I do like that I feel as though TV writing is learnable. Yeah. And... Clearly, you know so many people have written about how to write it. So it, I keep trying to remind myself that it is something that you can practice and learn, and it's not like you, Steve Levitan just woke up one day and was able to write Modern Family. It was consistent effort. Yeah,
1: I'm a big believer in that. That I remember, I read a book a while ago called Talent Is Overrated. And that really helped me open my mind to that kind of way of thinking. Because yeah, no no baby can write a sitcom pilot.
0: Right, except for your 12-year-old self who could write The Simpsons. That's true, yeah. So how do you find time to write the pilot given that you're also working a full-time job that is demanding? So are you really disciplined with when you write or do you write in bursts or do you have to kind of stick to a schedule to make it possible?
1: Yeah, so now I'm very lucky in that I actually, I've gone down to a part-time job So I kind of work Monday to Wednesdays and then spend Thursdays and Fridays on writing. But then before then, it was kind of trying to do it here and there. So kind of like in the morning, I'd go to a coffee shop or try and do it at lunchtime. But that wasn't... I'm not sure I could have done it like carrying on that way. I think like having days where you can just spend kind of hours in it feels like it's a lot more productive.
0: I I think I feel similarly because sometimes when... In order to even write something you just need to let your mind sit in that space and sit with those characters
1: for a bit there are definitely days where um it, it goes badly again uh, yeah i don't know if it actually works but I, I once read this thing about you know just trying to show up and no matter what mood you're in and then you know just getting out whatever you get out and then eventually it all builds up but yeah i've never i guess i've never done the experiment to find out whether not doing that is actually more effective.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not preaching great advice because I'm pretty sure every writing book I've read has been like, you should do it every day. So when you're done with your pilot and you know you, it's gone through multiple drafts and you've shown it to your friends and they're all at a point where they're like, yes, this is great, I wanna watch this. What do you feel like the next steps are for you? Yeah, I,
1: I don't know. I think if you'd asked me this time last year, I would have said, finish the pilot and then do everything I can to get it made. But I think now, yeah, I'm beginning to realize that that's probably not going to happen. It's like you said, it's probably more of a writing sample. So I think just move on to the next thing. Actually, something I've come across recently it's probably going to be (laughs) my blog post this week is about going for volume. So like quantity rather than quality. Hmm. Yeah, because I don't know whether this will resonate or people will want to buy it. So I think just moving on to the next thing when it's done and then just keep going. Because that's something I've noticed. Uh, so another thing I've been trying to do recently is kind of like tweet every weekday just to kind of keep in the joke writing habit. And one of the things I've noticed is that... Oh, nice. How have you been finding it?
0: It's it's okay. I think... I, I don't know what it is about my brain, but I'll have one day in the week where I'll just write a bunch and put them in my drafts. And then oh nice. I'll go back to my drafts. And
1: uh, I think one of the things I found is that like I I there's I cannot predict which tweets will go well and which don't. Like There's some where I think that is an amazing joke and i'll laugh at it and then it'll get absolutely zero reception and then there's somewhere it's like oh i don't have anything else today so i'll just put this one and then loads of people will like it so uh, yeah i'm imagining that extrapolates to pilots so you know maybe you know i think this one will great but no one will disagree and then i'll work on the next one which i think oh this is a bit hack but then that'll be the one that breaks through so yeah maybe all we can do is just keep doing it and then just see what sticks
0: yeah just have lots of options I don't know if this is the same in the UK but here in the US it's very much the path is you know have a good writing sample so that you can share that with agents and managers and then they can distribute you and set up meetings to get you into writer's room do you think it's a similar process or do you are you familiar with that
1: well I'm incredibly kind of jealous of the American system because we don't really have writer's rooms here I think there's a kind of growing trend for them but they're definitely not as kind of prevalent as they are in the u.s so here really really the first step is actually kind of getting a show commissioned which is obviously such a ridiculously high bar to meet i think that is great so you mentioned sex education i think that had a writer's room with different people writing every episode and there are a couple of other shows that like that. Um, so hopefully that will change because I would love to work in a writer's room because, yeah, again, that's how you learn, you know, I guess, seeing people who know what they're doing and then slowly pick up things.
0: I had no idea that weren't writer's rooms. So most shows were just written by, all the episodes were just written by one or two people?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Wow. Interesting. I think in some ways in the US that that trend is coming in too, because with streaming services, they can just order the whole series and so one person can write the whole thing. I mean, The Crown is a great example, but I guess that's a British show of just one person writing the entirety of The Crown. But I think with streaming services, it has become more prevalent that there's not a writer's room. But especially, I mean, with network TV, I think just because of the demand of how quickly episodes have to be released was the reason that Writer's Rooms came about. Oh,
1: that makes sense, yeah. But that's, it'd be a shame if they died out because I think, I also think that like you'll you'll get a better thing just by having lots of different perspectives and lots of people to bounce ideas around. So yeah, yeah, I hope I get to work in one one day.
0: I don't think they'll die out. And maybe I'm completely uh, lying here when I'm saying I think they might die out, but I have seen some shows that every episode is written by one person, which I hadn't seen in the past. But I think in the same way that people thought network TV would die out when Netflix and Hulu started making content and then it didn't, it will be like one of those things. So ideally, where, if we are like manifesting, where do oh, yeah. you see yourself working? What would that ideal comedy future look like for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, so definitely like in the interim, kind of getting, being able to work on a show, you know, maybe even my own. But I think like 10 years down the line, I'd love to create like a like a production company. the the pitch that I give people is like a a Pixar but for narrative comedy. So I guess like rather than
0: oh, I'd love that.
1: Yeah, oh, like in my head, it's so much fun like having a campus <laughs> and just having lots of different people and collaborating and working on different projects, whether it's like sitcoms or films or even video games and animation. So that's that's uh, what I'm slowly building towards, but. <laughs> Whether, and like incredibly slowly. If I, if I was manifesting, that's, that's where I'd like to be in like five to 10 years.
0: Oh, that's great. And one more thing that I want to ask you about is, are you developing an app? Uh,
1: yeah. So I, get, I guess on the way to that dream, it would be good to be able to finance it. So using my software developing skills, I've been trying to work on an app just to kind of, you know, raise some money to kind of finance short films and stuff like that. Um, So I'm finishing that up at the moment. Again, I imagine it's one of those things. It's no different to any creative endeavor. I'll try it, release it into the world, thinking it's going to be amazing. And then it's going to get very low reception. But then, you know, just move on to the next one.
0: You just need one thing to stick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that you're putting out so much different types of content into the world because it just, I feel like it allows me as someone who didn't know you before today to get to know you in so many different ways because from your blog posts, I kind of get to see how you think and from your web series I get to see your humor and you know from stand-up learn more about you as a person so I feel like the more you put out into the world and the fact that they're all different types of content it's only a matter of time that something will stick we just don't know which one yeah exactly that's all my questions for you. Do you have anything that you want to plug or share or you want people to watch or read? I would love for people to be able to find you.
1: Yeah, I guess at the moment, I'm most active on Twitter. My username is Harry H. Kunt. So that's H-A-R-I-H-K-A-N-T-H. As I maybe get back into filming and finish off the projects, I'll be like talking about them on there. So that's probably the best way for now.
0: Great. Actually, I had a question. Does anyone ever get you mixed up with the comedian Harry Kantabolu?
1: No, said, so, no that hasn't come up. No.
0: Good. Okay. When you first when we first connected on Twitter, I was like is it? Harikantabolu? <laughs> click, I click, I, as soon as I saw a picture, I knew it was not, but I was wondering if that was something you got, but maybe that's just because he's bigger in the US, so. I
1: keep meaning to watch his film about The Simpsons, actually. I've never got around to it, but. Uh.
0: Oh, yes, yes. A lot of my friends have mentioned that. It's the the problem with Apu.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. I should watch that too. All
0: right, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was so much fun to talk to you and get a different perspective outside of the US, so. Thank you so much. And I'm so excited to see what other work you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that was episode six of Brown Breakdown. Thank you so much for tuning in again. I had a blast talking to Hari. I highly, highly recommend you check out his website, h-a-r-i-k-a-n-t-h.co.uk for his blog post, his web series, and all of the updates about his comedy career. Again, if you ever have questions, feel free to reach out to us at Brown Breakdown on Instagram. See you next time.